The Pre-Paces podcast is brought to you by two brilliant sponsors. Paces Ahead is a fantastic four-day face-to-face paces course run in Brentford, London. They bring you a whole host of patients with fascinating stories and reliable signs, and these patients are absolutely delighted to allow you to hone your exam skills prior to exam day. Some of the patients actually are used in the exams themselves, and the next courses are running from the 20th to the 23rd of May, and then I will be helping out on the course running on the 28th to the 31st of May. Please do come and say hello. I'd love to have a chat and hopefully help you on your way to passing your paces. But if you can't make the course for whatever reason, our other sponsor, Pass Test, has got you covered with their market-leading online revision resource. There are tons of videos which help you revise from the comfort of your own home. And most listeners that I've spoken to have said this is equally essential for your paces success. But that's enough for me for now. Let's get into this week's episode of the Pre-Paces Podcast. Hello listeners and welcome back to the Pre-Paces podcast with me, Dr. Sam Williams. It's a fantastic episode this week with a brilliant guest, consultant rheumatologist Dr. John Pauling. Despite the depth of his expertise in systemic sclerosis, he manages to pitch this episode at a level where even I felt able to follow along, so I really hope you enjoy it. And so much success and love for the pod being shouted out on the Buy Me A Coffee page, this week most certainly belongs to one name and that is Alice. So firstly, thank you to Alice number one, I have to call you that because uh, you didn't put your second name, who mentioned that she passed first time, congratulations for that. Secondly, a massive thanks to Alice Southwell and Alice Cassie, who both donated after finding the podcast helpful. I'm always so grateful for any and all support via the Buy Me A Coffee page, and I hope those of you who recently rotated in August have settled into your new posts, and as ever, I hope your paces prep is going well. But right now, let's get into this week's episode of the Pre-Paces Podcast. Welcome to the Pre-Paces Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sam Williams, and we are delighted to welcome another expert guest to the show this week to discuss the topic of systemic sclerosis. Our guest today is a consultant rheumatologist from North Bristol NHS Trust and an honorary senior lecturer at the University of Bristol who has a subspecialist interest in systemic sclerosis and Raynaud's phenomenon. But thankfully, he's left his enthusiasm for anything related to skin tightness well away from his wardrobe for today's podcast recording. We're delighted to welcome Dr. John Pauling to the show. So, John, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me along. And uh, well done. This is a great initiative. And I'm delighted to contribute. Fantastic, John. Well, we are delighted to have you. And this is a really important uh, station. We know that this comes up in PACES time and time again. Systemic sclerosis patients are typical PACES patients. They've got stable signs and are able to come in at short notice as they're often managed as an outpatient. So without further ado, I think let's get straight into the conversation of systemic sclerosis. So, John, I think if we start off with the absolute basics, how do you define systemic sclerosis? Yeah, so systemic sclerosis is one of the autoimmune rheumatic connective tissue diseases 
all of the autoimmune connective tissue diseases have a, are a pathological triad of vasculopathy, fibrosis, and inflammation. And when we approach patients in the CTD clinic, we look for evidence of vasculopathy, Raynaud's pulmonary vasculopathy, renal vasculopathy. We look for evidence of fibrosis in the skin, the lungs, the GI tract. We look for evidence of inflammation, which could be, in the context of lupus, can be virtually any tissue in the body can be inflamed. And then we put all of those pieces of the jigsaw together, uh, including the antibodies, nail fog, capillaroscopy, and other diagnostic tests, step back, look at the jigsaw, and see what the picture is. So it's very much a clinical diagnosis. To my mind, at least, systemic sclerosis is the most fascinating of all the autoimmune connective tissue diseases. Uh, sadly, it has the highest disease-related mortality of all the autoimmune connective tissue diseases because of internal organ involvement affecting the heart, the lungs, the kidneys, and the GI tract. As you've mentioned already, it is a favorite for PACES examinations because there are lots of visible signs and patients to chronic disease, like many of our patients have had systemic sclerosis and lived with it for uh, many years and some patients have lived with it for decades and the, it's very slowly progressive. So the clinical signs can be quite stable and it's a multi-system disease. So a systemic sclerosis patient could easily present in a respiratory station with lung fibrosis. They could present in a long case scenario with a history and examination. They they are popular patients, and I think it's a great topic to cover as part of uh, your PACES preparation podcasts. Yeah, brilliant. And I know from speaking to many people who've sat PACES, they are favourites. And I guess the one of the things our listeners will really want to know is, in terms of a, of a vignette before each station, my my preference would be we cover this from a long case uh, type uh, consultation. As you've said, they may come up in a respiratory type station, but I think the real uh, value is going to come if we come at it from a clinical consultation perspective. So with that in mind, there's often a vignette where it will be a referral letter from primary care or from another physician of some sort saying, uh, I'm concerned this patient has systemic sclerosis. So how might that be presented as a as an opening gambit to, to the uh, listeners um, when they come to uh, read the brief for their paces station? So I think if I was to set an exam, I would, I would create a vignette that would say something like, uh, this 45-year-old lady has developed increased sensitivity of her fingers to cold and gastroesophageal reflux. Please, can you advise? Or something along those lines. That, that would be a very typical referral to the, to the scleroderma clinic. And I guess as as that's your initial vignette, we should sort of caveat everything we say with that you should follow your line of questioning along what the main presenting symptom is that you're given on the vignette. But presuming that it's one of those, either something that may suggest uh, Reynolds phenomenon or some sort of esophageal dysmotility. If we take Reynolds to start off with, what are the main questions that you would want our candidates to ask their uh, patients in front of them about their Reynolds to really bring out the, the most important parts of the history? So, so Reynolds is a increased sensitivity to cold with excessive vasospasm of the digital arteries, capillaries and the post-capillary venules in response to typically cold exposure, but also emotional stress. So the questions I ask patients in clinic is, are, have your fingers become more sensitive to the cold? And if so, when they're exposed to cold, have you noticed any abnormal color changes in the fingers? And the absolute textbook case will be patients will describe blanching of their fingers when these 
precapillary arterioles go into vasospasm, completely cutting off the blood supply to the digits. You can get cyanosis, the blue phase, which is the postcapillary venules constricting, leading to blood sequestering in the fingers and becoming deoxygenated. And then often after this initial phase of hypoxia, the circulation to the fingers is restored with a period of hyperemia where the fingers will become a deep red colour. But you certainly don't need to have all three of those colour changes to diagnose somebody as having Raynaud's. And we've undertaken research where we've demonstrated that even in the context of systemic sclerosis, which is one of the conditions associated with the most severe forms of Raynaud's, about 10% of our patients will only describe one colour change. Uh, so you definitely don't need to have all three to make a confident diagnosis, but you definitely need to have increased cold sensitivity, and typically there'll be at least one colour change associated with with uh, with that. And then just whilst we're talking about Raynaud's symptoms, the fingers are where we often ask about, but it, all of the extremities, any part of the body where there are thermoregulatory arteriovenous anastomoses can be affected by Raynaud's. So that includes the toes, the ears, the nose, and the areola tissues as well. So, so there, it can affect multiple parts of the body. And I think an examiner would be impressed if you, you know, a candidate explored other regions of the body that were affected. And then for the bonus point, in secondary Raynaud's, uh, the thumb is often involved, whereas in primary Raynaud's, there's often spurring of the thumbs. But I would say the most important piece of the story when it comes to really the, answering the first question is this primary or secondary Raynaud's is the age of onset. Primary Raynaud's will typically present in late adolescence or early adulthood. It's a vasospastic tendency that emerges after menarche in adolescence post-puberty. People should not develop Raynaud's symptoms in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 70s, 80s. So I think late onset Raynaud's is the most important indicator that this is a secondary form of Raynaud's. Yeah, brilliant. And I guess the other thing is when you say an increased sensitivity to cold, is it is it a, a pain that they feel in the fingers? Yeah, so the, the physical symptoms uh, include pain. Not all patients experience pain, but lots do because of the tissue hypoxia. So it's almost like an anginal pain. But some patients don't get pain, but they get significant sensory symptoms such as numbness, tingling, uh, sometimes a burning sensation, which people don't necessarily say is painful, but they just feel this a burning sensation, a neuropathic burning almost within their fingers. And then when the fingers are affected, it becomes very difficult for people to use their hands. So they can't get their card out their wallets. They can't do their buttons up. And actually, we've done a lot of work in systemic sclerosis, looking at the patient experience of Raynaud's phenomenon. And it has a big emotional impact. People get frustrated, angry, embarrassed upset, tearful. So there's, you know, you could consider this vasospastic tendency of the fingers to be a benign condition, but actually it really impacts on patients' lives. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll come on to it when we come to talk about the social history of our patients. But asking about function, I think, is something that's so important and actually shouldn't shouldn't really be neglected even in the first part of the history, because typically in paces, it will have some either significant effect on their quality of life or even on their occupation. That Typically, there's something like a seamstress or a secretary that requires the type or something like that, that, that it does affect their work in a significant way. Yeah. No, so social and work participation. I, I completely agree. And it, it's and a number of our patients have to give up their job or change their role or seek support from others uh, to undertake family roles, for example. So it's uh, so it's a it's a big issue and definitely something to explore. Brilliant. I wonder if we should just uh, delineate when we talk about primary and secondary Raynaud's. So 
primary Raynaud's is where there isn't an underlying cause or, or a secondary cause, such as a, a, a connective tissue disease or autoimmune condition of another sort. Is that right, John? Yeah, so primary Raynaud's, we use the term primary Raynaud's where there isn't a known cause leading to this digital vasculopathy. For many, we consider it a benign but intrusive vasospastic tendency. There are certain features that can predict you having primary Raynaud's. So if you're if you have very low BMI, for example, then there is a thermoregulatory component to Raynaud's, which will precipitate Raynaud's. So I'll sometimes meet people in the Raynaud's clinic who didn't have any Raynaud's symptoms until the age of 27. But what happened at the age of 27 is they got themselves fit. They lost stone and a half in weight, perhaps be, even maybe became a little bit underweight. And then suddenly these symptoms emerged. Now, you could argue that is that primary or secondary, but it would probably fall with under the remit of primary Raynaud's, but it's been unmasked by other changes in people, people's lifestyle. I mean, and that is literally how I approach, approach patients in clinic. I'm always interested in why now? Why is this patient sat with me now? And what's changed that may have contributed to this? And then in terms of other causes of secondary Raynaud's, it can be caused by neurological disease, so peripheral neuropathies. Uh, it can be, you know, in the case of carpal tunnel syndrome, it can be then unilateral sometimes can be caused by endocrine endocrine causes. So that is one cause of Raynaud's where people's weight has gone up, but they develop Raynaud's symptoms in the context of hypothyroidism. There's a very satisfying way of diagnosing Raynaud's because it's curable. And again, that links into thermoregulation because of the reduced metabolic requirements in the body. It can be macrovascular. Typically, that cases of macrovascular Raynaud's are unilateral, or they may just affect the lower limbs. So if if patients describe unilateral Raynaud's, I'm always thinking, what is the local fault within the uh, subclavian or axillary or brachial arteries? And uh, and thoracic outlet syndrome is a typical condition that can present in that manner. And then drugs is a really important cause of Raynaud's phenomenon. The the one that's typically listed in textbooks are beta blockers, and so patients they've had an MI. They get treated with a beta blocker and this unmasks Raynaud's symptoms. Patients who've had cancer treatment, that the cytotoxic therapy can lead to direct damage to the endothelium and lead to Raynaud's symptoms. And an increasingly important cause of Raynaud's are, are some of the drugs used in the management of ADHD, which have very strong sympathomimetic drives and that promotes peripheral vasoconstriction. So ask about medications, and again, a satisfying one because then we never like to treat a symptom with another drug, a symptom caused by a drug by, with another drug. So it's always worth then exploring whether or not you're able to stop that drug and consider alternatives. Yeah, fantastic. If we move on to uh, the symptoms related to esophageal dysmotility, which is another thing you mentioned, which may feature in our vignette, what are the commonest uh, esophageal symptoms that uh, that the patients tend to report to you when, when you see them in clinic? Often reflux is the first symptom. Gastroesophageal reflux disease occurs in about 90% of patients with systemic sclerosis at some point in their disease course, and it's often an early feature. So, you know, the vignettes I've described would be very typical of the type of symptoms patients might describe very early on in their disease course. Obviously, candidates in PACERS will be sat with a patient who's probably got very long-standing established disease, and it can sometimes actually make it difficult to do a long case because patients start talking about symptoms that started 20 years ago, but but, you know, in terms of the timeline of events, Raynaud's is typically the first feature. Then reflux symptoms is not an uncommon second feature. And then and another common early feature, and there's actually a concept called very early diagnosis of systemic sclerosis or VDOS. 
The other feature is puffy fingers. So that when these blood vessels are clamping down, opening up, clamping down, opening up, there's significant leak of fluid from the blood vessels into the interstitium, and that can present with puffy fingers, we call it. We Sometimes you'll see it uh, written down as sausage fingers, but I would discourage anyone from naming a body part after a piece of meat. <laughs> um, I prefer puffy fingers. Yeah, so the reflux symptoms, systemic sclerosis, can affect the whole of the GI tract from mouth to anus. So you, know, you can get dryness of the mouth. You can get high esophageal dysphagia. So this is where the, the normal peristalsis within the esophagus uh, becomes damaged and it can affect your ability to swallow solid foods. You can get gastroparesis, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, severe constipation, anorectal disease. At the heart of all of these different features, is replacement of the normal muscular GI uh, luminal wall with fibrosis. And when the, when that normal architecture of the uh, luminal wall gets replaced with scar tissue, then the ability of that GI wall to do its job normally, whether that's a sphincter or peristalsis within the GI tract, becomes disturbed. So a lot of the problems we encounter are about things slowing down. And we, if we move on from esophageal dysmotility, we're going to move on to something which you sort of alluded to already, which is skin changes. And I think you, you mentioned about puffy fingers. And um, I mean, it, it, does that go with sclerodactyly? Is that the is that a related term? Is that the same term? It's it's a different. It's so sclerodactyly is means thickening of the skin of the fingers, and that often follows that period of puffy fingers. So patients with uh, will develop puffy fingers and then over time the puffiness will actually uh, regress but they'll, the patients will notice that the skin has become increasingly thickened and what's happening from a pathological perspective is all the fluid that's leaking out into the interstitium is full of immune cells and those immune cells excite the fibroblasts the resident fibroblasts to differentiate into myofibroblasts to start laying down excessive collagen and then there's impairment of your normal collagenases to, and metalloproteinases to break down that collagen. And so you end up with this excessive collagen formation. When it affects the skin, we call that sclerodactyly. I think the most important thing from a clinical perspective in terms of skin involvement is the extent of skin involvement. So the first way we subset our patients is into limited cutaneous systemic sclerosis and diffuse cutaneous systemic sclerosis. And that is based on how much skin has been affected. So as the name would suggest, in limited cutaneous systemic sclerosis, the skin changes are often limited to the fingers, the hands, and the face. And in diffuse systemic sclerosis, there's often involvement of the upper arms, the upper legs, so on the thighs, and the trunk. And the reason we subset our patients into limited and diffuse is uh, the patients have very different uh, prognosis and uh, major clinical features from that um, point onwards. And in very simple terms, the patients with diffuse cutaneous systemic sclerosis will often be troubled more with fibrotic complications of systemic sclerosis, so lung fibrosis, uh, significant involvement uh, throughout the length of the GI tract, whereas patients with limited form are often more troubled with the vascular features of systemic sclerosis, so severe Raynaud's, the development of ulcers on the fingers because of uh, severe hypoxia to the fingertips, the emergence of telangiectasis, calcinosis cutis. The calcinosis 
are these small flecks. They can be large, but small flecks of calcium hydroxyapatite that sits within the dermis of the skin itself. And they form at the site of profound localized hypoxia. So they really are a vascular feature of the disease. And then the other thing we worry about in a number of the patients with a limited form of systemic sclerosis is vasculopathy occurring in other organ systems, and in particular the lungs. And, and we may have an opportunity to talk about how systemic sclerosis affects the lungs in more detail. But just before I leave this concept of limited cutaneous systemic sclerosis, I've described a number of features there that were originally part of the CREST uh, abbreviation or acronym. So um, in CREST, it was C was calcinosis, R was Raynaud's phenomenon, E, because it was an American classification, was esophageal uh, dysmotility, S was sclerodactyly, and T was telangiectasis. And there'll be plenty of PACES examiners, uh, particularly more senior PACES examiners, who will be more au fait with the uh, acronym CRESS than they would be with limited cutaneous systemic sclerosis, but they can be used interchangeably. And uh, and the antibody, while we're on the subject, that is commonly associated with that particular clinical presentation are the anti-centromere antibodies. Yeah, brilliant. And we'll we'll probably end up uh, repeating that when we come to the uh, investigations, but good to get it in early and see if the listeners can uh, remember it up until that point. So we've gone through the main uh, constituents. We've talked about Raynaud's, we've talked about esophageal symptoms we talked about the skin changes once the listeners have gone through the the main constituents of the history they'll probably be expected to cover a a more systematic review of symptoms and now with the new clinical consultations being 15 minutes of patient contact albeit a combined history examination they've got more time to explore some of the multi-systemic features of systemic sclerosis so john i wonder if we can um go in a stepwise fashion, maybe first through the, the multi-systemic symptoms of systemic sclerosis, which would help our listeners provide evidence to uh, support a diagnosis of systemic sclerosis, but then maybe also some features they may ask about, which would then su- suggest another diagnosis or, or or one of our differentials, which we'll come on to talk about. I mean, it's a challenge to systemic sclerosis, because as I mentioned already, it's a multi-system disease. I think the important systems to ask about are cardiovascular, so cardiac symptoms. So they could be symptoms such as syncope, conduction disturbance. Uh, some patients, that there is a, an accelerated atherosclerosis that can occur, so you, can, you should always ask about anginal symptoms. Uh, from a respiratory perspective, respiratory disease really is sadly the biggest killer in systemic sclerosis. So uh, patients can become extremely poorly from a respiratory perspective, either because of lung fibrosis, which will typically present with exertional dyspnea and a dry cough, so a non-productive cough, or pulmonary arterial hypertension, which I've already briefly mentioned, which is where the blood vessels in the lungs begin to become damaged in the same way as the blood vessels in the fingers. You know, we've talked about Raynaud's and vasospasm. What's actually happening pathophysiologically within these blood vessels is something called an obliterative microangiopathy. So all the layers of the blood vessel become hypertrophied and thickened, progressively leading to luminal destruction. So the actual lumen ends up tiny. And in the context of the lungs, that puts significant pressure on the right-hand side of the heart because the pressure within the right side of the pulmonary vasculature goes up. And so we call that pulmonary arterial hypertension. And unfortunately, I say it puts major pressure on the right side of the heart. So these patients will sometimes then present with features of right-sided heart failure, so raised JVP, swelling of their ankles, uh, again, exertional dyspnea, uh, because if those 
blood vessels have all become tapered, their ability to pick up oxygen and oxygenate the blood is obviously hugely impaired. So we've already talked about the GI tract and the fact it can affect any part of the GI tract. So I start at the top. So you could ask about seeker symptoms, dryness of the mouth, esophageal symptoms, reflux, this uh, dysphagia, bloating, diarrhea. Even though I've talked about reduced GI transits, but when you get small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, patients end up with significant abdominal distension, which often then presents with quite profuse watery diarrhea. But it is a problem with reduced GI transit leading to that and the buildup of bugs within the system. In men, you should ask about erectile dysfunction. They'll often not volunteer that. Similarly, women will and men will often not mention the fact that they've had fecal soiling events. They're embarrassed to bring it up. They, they assume it's not related. You know, I'd encourage you to explore symptoms like that. And then the, the final organ, which we worry greatly about um, in systemic sclerosis, is the kidney. But like a lot of forms of kidney disease, it can be clinically completely silent. So patients won't experience any flank pain or blood loss in their urine. They will uh, just present with progressive kidney failure. But the, the key there is the blood pressure rises significantly during a scleroderma renal crisis, which is the, the name we give to kidney involvement in systemic sclerosis. So measuring the blood pressure is very important and actually educating patients to home monitor their blood pressure as well. Yeah, fantastic. And if I can touch on one thing, which thinking about something like joint pain, which is obviously a symptom which is widespread in rheumatology, is that ever a, a predominant feature in patients with systemic sclerosis? Or actually, if you ask about joint pain, is that something which would make you think otherwise? Yeah, so you should definitely ask about joint symptoms and, and muscle inflammation as well. So myositis and synovitis can both occur in the context of systemic sclerosis. If it's significant and there's true joint inflammation, so true synovial thickening fluid within the joints, it often is part of a of an overlap syndrome with rheumatoid arthritis. We will often see, well, we're not often, but uh, systemic sclerosis can certainly coexist with rheumatoid arthritis. What lots of patients will describe is pain and restriction in their joints that actually isn't coming from the joints themselves, but because of the skin involvement around those joints. So if you've got significant skin involvement around your elbow, you will find it very difficult to fully extend your elbow and fully flex the elbow. And when you attempt to do either of those movements, it can be quite painful. But that isn't necessarily a true arthropathy or inflammation in the joints, although it often it can occur. And then muscle inflammation, which we typically associate with polymyositis, another autoimmune connective tissue disease, that can certainly occur in the context of scleroderma. So systemic sclerosis and myositis can overlap, probably more commonly than systemic sclerosis and rheumatoid arthritis. And there are certain antibodies, actually, that we can measure in the bloodstream that are associated with an overlap scleroderma myositis. So yeah, so definitely ask about joints and uh, muscle disease. And, and that's probably why rheumatologists ended up managing a lot of these autoimmune connective tissue diseases. C certainly in lupus, joint inflammation is a very prominent feature. So if you have Raynaud's in conjunction with joint pain, it doesn't necessarily rule out the diagnosis of systemic sclerosis. But I guess the takeaway from the listeners is it's worth mentioning that it could be an overlap syndrome with another connective tissue disease or, or autoimmune disease where there is joint involvement. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, And it goes back to what I was saying at the very start, this pathological triad. About a third of patients with lupus will have Raynaud's. 
about 50% of patients with inflammatory myopathy will have ray nodes. So you see the same features occurring in these conditions. And it's just the extent to which it occurs that really sways what clinical diagnosis you make. So, so somebody with really significant joint inflammation and a bit of ray nodes, you might be leaning towards diagnosing rheumatoid arthritis. Whereas somebody with really significant ray nodes and a degree of joint inflammation, you'd certainly be look, you know, leaning more towards one of the connective tissue diseases such as uh, such as systemic sclerosis. Fantastic. So then if we move on to the extended parts of our history, we move on from our systematic review. I mean, we've talked a bit about the uh, conditions associated. If someone already has a, a background of an autoimmune rheumatological condition, rheumatoid arthritis, SLE, does that put them at any increased risk or is that just an incidental finding that they've got dual pathology? Yeah, it would be unusual, although I have seen it, where patients have had a diagnosis of lupus and then go on to evolve into systemic sclerosis, but that can happen. What we'll more typically see is you will, um, when you're talking about people's personal history of autoimmunity, they will say, I've got, I'm taking thyroxin for my hypothyroidism. So they'll have some other form of organ-specific autoimmunity. They may have had primary ovarian failure. And the family history is really important. So it's unusual to meet somebody with systemic sclerosis who has another family member with systemic sclerosis. But chances are their mum's mum had rheumatoid and they've got a maternal aunt with lupus. And you see, you know, there, there might be somebody else in the family with multiple sclerosis. So you definitely see this strong flavour of autoimmunity running through families. But not necessarily a, a direct, my mum's got systemic sclerosis and my grandma before her had it. Exactly. So it's, I mean, you occasionally will see that two sisters who both got systemic sclerosis, but uh, I have seen twins where one has systemic sclerosis and the other one's got myositis. All of the autoimmune connective tissue diseases are what we call gene environment interactions. So you have this genetic predisposition to autoimmunity and then the right environmental trigger needs to come along at the right time in your life to set off the autoimmune condition and and that can present as lots of different diseases so it's uh, uh it's absolutely fascinating field of medicine really and yeah absolutely you mentioned earlier about the relevance of drugs and you mentioned about beta blockers are there any other particular uh, medications which which patients can take which can contribute or uh, cause Raynaud's or, or uh, any of the I guess that skin changes would be unlikely. So I guess Reynolds is probably the, the one thing which can be precipitated by drugs. Uh, yeah, so cytotoxic agents for cancer. Hopefully, you, you know, you, you might have listed that they'd had a history of cancer or by that point. Beta blockers, sympathomimetic drugs. I think, you know, in terms of drugs, you know, some people argue that smoking history should be included here. So, you know, nicotine is a very potent vasoconstrictor. And then other recreational drugs that have a strong sympathomimetic components such as cocaine, amphetamines, again, worth asking about as either part of a drug, prescribed drug history or within the social history. Yeah, absolutely. And you sort you sort of beat me to it there because we were going to move on to the social history and, and I was going to guess that smoking is going to be a, a significant thing to ask about as uh, not only contributing to atherosclerosis, but also just the, the inflammatory reaction that it has or it must have to the uh, endothelium. Well, definitely. So autoimmune, a lot of our autoimmune connective tissue diseases and rheumatic diseases are very closely aligned with smoking and tobacco use. It has been claimed that rheumatoid arthritis didn't exist in the UK until tobacco arrived. 
in the 16th century. So it, it, in rheumatoid arthritis, it's very, very important. In systemic sclerosis, as a causal factor, it doesn't appear to be as important, but patients with systemic sclerosis who smoke have much more severe Raynaud's phenomenon, get far more in the way of digital ulcers and even pulmonary vasculopathy. So making sure our patients with systemic sclerosis are given the support to stop smoking is absolutely vital. Um, and then wh- whilst we're on the subject of social history, and you mentioned it earlier, occupational history is really important. Um, there are, we, we talked about the gene environment interaction, and we worry that there are certain environmental triggers that can be linked with people's occupation uh, that may be relevant. So um, for example, there have been increased um, prevalence of systemic sclerosis amongst people who mine silicon so it's, or silica. And um, so there's definitely certain environmental toxins that can lead to a systemic sclerosis like illness. If we park our history for the moment, after our listeners have uh, taken their full history from the uh, from the patient, they'll be expected to perform a focused examination. Important to emphasise that it's going to be led by the vignette and what the presenting symptom of our patient uh, has been. But if we pre- if we proceed as if it has been Reynolds, and then we can um, we can talk about the uh, other other features and how we would examine for those later. But um, what would be uh, the the first part of the uh, examination, or what are the key parts of the examination that um, the the listeners should focus on for the patient who's presented with uh, Raynaud's? So the vignette may mention breathlessness as a feature if there's a pulmonary uh, clinical sign for you to find. So you know if they say this lady's presented with Raynaud symptoms, uh, reflux symptoms, and breathlessness, then you're going to make sure you want to have a good listen to the. The, the chest. The um, in terms of the hands, obviously the examination always starts, um, you know, at the end of the bed, and then a close examination of the hands. And there's lots of clinical signs that can be found in the hands. The first thing I always do is is the finger sweep, where I place my hand, the the, the dorsum of my hand, on the back of the dorsum of the patient's hand, and just start just above the wrist and sweep that my fingers down towards the fingertips. And in systemic sclerosis, you'll often feel the fingers getting cooler and cooler as you move distally. So that can be a useful clinical feature that indicates that the patient has Raynaud's. And then in terms of examining the fingers, we've talked about sclerodactyly, puffy fingers. Uh, look at the fingertips for any evidence of active digital ulcers. When digital ulcers heal, they often heal with small areas of damage that we call digital pitting. You can see little pits on the ends of the fingers where there's where there's been previous ulceration. And sometimes patients can develop critical digital ischemia where the tip of the finger becomes necrotic and will also amputate and lead to significant deformity of the ends of the fingers related to previous uh, ischemic events. So, So look at the fingers and look for any evidence of deformity that may have been related to previous uh, tissue necrosis or damage. And then I mentioned in the CREST acronym and you may feel lumps of calcium within the hand. So to examine the dorsal and palmar aspects of the fingers to look for these deposits of calcium. And then these blanching telangiectases, these are small dilated dermal capillaries, uh, which you can 
which are, again, like calcinosis, they form at the areas of intense localized hypoxia uh, in, a, in the body's attempts to try and increase the blood supply to those areas. And these small telangiectases, if you press them, they'll blanch and, the, and then re, very quickly refill. And the other area you may see capillary dilatation and damage is at the nail fold. So try and examine the nail fold and look to see if you can see any hemorrhages or infarcts or dilated capillaries at the nail fold. And then moving away from the hands, I would probably, you know, in terms of my routine clinical practice, I'd probably be reaching for the stethoscope next to examine the heart. So we talked about pulmonary hypertension leading to swelling of the ankles, raised JVP. I'm going to feel the peripheral pulses, particularly, you know, if this was unilateral Raynaud's, you may, you know, it might be that they've got or large vessel vasculitis, they could have a very strong pulse on one side and unilateral Raynaud's on the other side with a very weak pulse. And think about alternative pathology in that. In systemic sclerosis, usually the pulses will be present despite the fact that the digits themselves are so cold. And then listening to the chest, thinking paces and approaching this exam smartly, don't be surprised to hear the Velcro sounding end inspiratory fibrotic crepitations of lung fibrosis. Uh, particularly at the bases of the lungs posteriorly, and uh, would be the clinical sign I'd be looking for, particularly if the vignettes describe breathlessness as one of the, f- the features. Yeah. I guess one thing as well, which uh, I don't know if, whether or not you would choose to do this around the time of the hand examination as well. You mentioned earlier about trying to differentiate between limited and diffuse systemic sclerosis. So after you're done with the hands, would you then also uh, want to check the arms or other areas of the body where, where you mentioned about the uh, the skin tightening? So we do, the, we, there's a clinical outcome measure called the modified Rodman skin score. So we actually, in clinical practice, will examine the skin at 17 different sites in the body. No PACES examinee or examiner has ever heard of the modified Rodman skin score. But you're absolutely right. I think I think you it would be great if you're able to demonstrate that, you know, if you felt skin thickening on the anterior chest or abdomen or the upper arms. So you could then call that diffuse disease. So what the point of demarcation is distal to the elbows, distal to the knees is limited. And they say distal to the clavicles, referring to the face. So knees, elbows, and clavicles, whereas diffuse is above the knees, above the elbows, and involving the trunk. And it would be great, actually, if a, um, if a student were to, if I were examining a student and said, this is diffuse rather than limited, I'd be very impressed. Yeah, and I think that's the type of thing which will separate you from you know possibly a a borderline score to a clear pass is making that distinction in in diagnosis um and one other sign i came across uh, john is microstomia with sort of a small mouth and restrictive mouth opening is that a very common sign that you see it is so facial involvement because because that occurs in both limited and diffuse forms Uh, another way of looking at limited disease is often exposed areas of the body so it's and, and interesting is parts of the body that are commonly exposed to the outside temperatures, so the, the hands, the forearms, the face. And in terms of the face, you do get this, when you get fibrosis of the skin around the mouth, it can lead to progressive narrowing of the oral aperture or microstomia. You'll occasionally get a beak appearance to the nose and you'll see taut skin over the over the cheeks as well. So there's, there's a, there is a very typical uh, systemic sclerosis facies Want of a better term, and again, that's the initial kind of. You've read the vignette, you know. We always encourage students to stand at the end of the bed, you know, see what clinical signs might be evident. You may again on the face see lots of telangiectases over the cheeks 
the nose as well, and also involving the buccal mucosa of the lips. So, so yes, yeah, so examining the face, I think, and and one you know tip I'm sure you give your listeners all the time, but you know if you see changes on the face, don't just register them. Be seeing to make a point of going over. Would you mind if I examine your face? Would you mind if I just touch a few of these spots on the face? Look for the blanching. And then you're demonstrating to the examiner that you're picking up on these signs as you go along. You could ask the patient to open their mouth as wide as possible, you know, for example, just to get a flavour of that. The examiner will then know, okay, this person's on the right track. Yeah, absolutely. It's the old, uh, the driving test uh, adage, you know, mirror signal manoeuvre, make it really clear what you're demonstrating to the examiner. Fantastic. And then I guess one last thing, just to finish off, we, you, you mentioned about pedal edema and examining the feet, but I thought one other thing uh, just to emphasize maybe is you mentioned earlier about examining distally for more peripheral ulceration in, in, in the feet as well. So whilst, yes, you're, ch- you're checking for pedal edema as a p- possible sign of pulmonary hypertension, but looking more peripherally for digital ischemia in the toes would again demonstrate to the examiner that you're thinking more comprehensively about this patient and not just limiting your examination to the hands. Yeah, no, completely agree. Brilliant. So if we move now on to uh, something which we've sort of alluded to through uh, the early course of the conversation, but about the differentials that we might talk to the examiner about. Now, we've mentioned a few different things and, and systemic sclerosis is hopefully going to be your number one. And we've and we've discussed about how to differentiate that between limited and diffuse, which which we hope you'd be able to demonstrate to the examiners. But as we've as we've discussed, there's a few differential diagnoses which might um, come into come into our conversation with the examiner. So, so John, I wonder if we could just outline again for the listeners what, what some of the differential diagnoses might be. So we talk, spoke about overlap with inflammatory arthritis. So if the patient's hands have typical deformities of rheumatoid arthritis, but they've got patients got skin thickening and telangiectasis, you know, be ready to talk about potential overlap uh, with uh, other conditions like rheumatoid arthritis. And remember, rheumatoid arthritis can present with lung fibrosis as well. So you know, sometimes the patient can have, you know, you could easily label the patient as either rheumatoid arthritis or systemic sclerosis or both. In terms of, you know, let's say now you've examined, you've had a history of cold hands, but there are none of these features of systemic sclerosis. Uh, another area that you could consider examining is the muscle strength. So examining the muscle strength in the arms, just thinking if this, in case there's another autoimmune rheumatic disease, if there's significant weakness of the deltoid muscles, if you ask the patient to take a few steps and they had a kind of waddling gait and they were unable to stand without uh, support, you may think of the idiopathic inflammatory myopathies. So, uh, and, and sometimes they, they, those patients can have quite significant muscle wasting. So, the, so in terms of differential diagnosis, you should certainly consider other autoimmune rheumatic diseases such as idiopathic inflammatory myopathy or polymyositis. Dermatomyositis can also present with lung fibrosis, Raynaud's, but they have a different constellation of cutaneous features. So they'll often have Gottron's sign on their fingers, these little papules sitting over the extensor aspects of the interphalangeal joints and MCPs. They may have this heliotrope appearance around their face. Never forget lupus. You know, they the, so look for the skin, the malar uh, butterfly rash of lupus, you know, will occasionally present. And again, that could still be lung fibrosis with Raynaud's phenomenon. So certainly all of the autoimmune rheumatic diseases, it'd be great if you could demonstrate some understanding of the conditions closely associated with systemic sclerosis. Yeah, and then if it were unilateral Raynaud's, you could think about thoracic outlet obstruction, 
large vessel vasculitis. Again, just think about where anatomically the fault might be and what could lead to narrowing within that area. If there's been a significant smoking history, uh, Berger's disease will often can lead to quite severe symmetrical raynodes. But again, the radial pulses will often be absent in Berger's disease because it is a true macrovascular disease. Where unlike systemic sclerosis, where the macrovasculature is often unimpeded, but it's a microangiopathy. Uh, so I think you'll be guided by the clinical signs in terms of uh, the differential diagnosis. Fantastic. And hopefully there's enough evidence there that they'll be able to pretty clearly say that it's systemic sclerosis. But as you say, always important to be prepared. You know, the easiest question for a lazy examiner is, you know, what else could it be? So always be prepared. And then moving on to our investigations, I guess investigating these patients starts with the very simple thing. So, I mean, a routine set of OBS is, is something that we do in pretty much every patient. And you mentioned earlier the importance of checking the blood pressure, particularly in these patients, for as a, as a sign of a scleroderma renal crisis. The only other thing I thought of in, in checking the routine OBS is, is an oxygen saturation, just to look and see if there's any significant hypoxia as a result of possible interstitial lung disease. I don't know if there's anything you care to add to that. Well, definitely. So in both pulmonary arterial hypertension and interstitial lung disease, you'll often find that patients' basal oxygen saturations may be normal, but as soon as you exert them in any way, the oxygen saturations will very quickly drop. And one of the tests we'll often do in the clinic setting is a six-minute walk test or a hall test, they call it in the US, where you get patients to walk for six minutes and you measure uh, how far they manage to walk, but also you can look at things like dips in their oxygen saturation as they walk. So, yeah, so at the bedside, you know, I would say uh, blood pressure, saturations, uh, you know, weight, the urine dip can be important. You can, in a renal crisis, there is often sediment on the urine dip. And then an ECG, if you consider that a bedside test, you know, again, looking for conduction disturbance, evidence of right heart strain in the context of pulmonary arterial hypertension. Uh, in terms of other useful diagnostic tests, the two most important in this in the very early stages where patients, maybe you, you might just have a 45-year-old lady with Raynaud symptoms, new onset Raynaud's, they won't have established lung fibrosis, telangiectasis, calcinosis, sclerodactyly. So often, you know, the two tests that we'll do in a clinical setting to uh, make a diagnosis are the autoantibody profile and net formal nail fold polaroscopy, where we use a microscope to look at the nail folds, looking for some of the characteristic features of this microangiopathy. So to talk first about the antibodies, one of the really useful things in systemic sclerosis is virtually all patients will carry autoantibodies and those autoantibodies are mutually exclusive and by that I mean if you carry anti-centromere antibodies you probably won't carry anti-topoisomerase 1 antibodies or anti-RNA polymerase 3 antibodies and so and then the third really useful thing don't often see these in the healthy population and then the final one is they tell you an awful lot about prognosis so if I see a patient who carries topoisomerase 1 antibodies, sometimes we use that term interchangeably with anti-SCL70 antibodies, they are often associated with significant lung fibrosis. You can have limited or diffuse disease, but often they will they can start as limited and progress into diffuse cutaneous subsets. The anti-centromere antibodies is the CREST acronym, so often usually limited disease, very unusual to get diffuse skin changes in anti-centromere. You're thinking more about vascular injury, digital ulcers, telangiectasis, calcinosis. 
you, one in five people with anti-centromere antibodies will develop pulmonary arterial hypertension at some point in their disease course. So again, a vascular insult. And then the third really common antibody uh, is RNA polymerase 3. This is typically associated with very widespread skin involvement. So very early, rapidly progressive, diffuse skin involvement. And these patients can get significant lung fibrosis, cardiac disease, and they are the one group of patients at particular risk of a scleroderma renal crisis. So there are, there are actually 10 scleroderma-specific antibodies, but I think for the purpose of the exam, if, you, if you're able to demonstrate an understanding of the top three, and they really are the top three, about 40% of all this, of our scleroderma patients will be centromere, about 25% of patients will be topoisomerase 1, about 15% will be RNA polymerase 3. So you're accounting there for 80% of our patients will have one of those three antibodies. It'd be great if you demonstrated some understanding of that. That would be kind of top marks. But the key thing, you know, I think what would get you a pass is just to say, I would check the anti-nuclear antibody and ask the lab to do an extended systemic sclerosis screen. And then in terms of the nail fog pilaroscopy, Again, I think just demonstrating an understanding that the nail fold is one of the few areas of the body where you can directly visualize capillaries, and it's a useful place to look in systemic sclerosis for this microangiopathy. I think that would be, I'd be very impressed if anyone knew that as a, as a starting point. And, uh, you know, for those who are interested in learning more about systemic sclerosis, what we'll often see at the nail fold is significant capillary dropout because of that obliterative microangiopathy. And then where the body tries to create new blood vessels, you end up with these very aberrant-looking giant capillaries and bushy capillaries. So you can get very kind of uh, unusual appearances at the nail folds. And, and sometimes those changes are visible with the naked eye. Wow, fantastic run-through of, of, of the important diagnostic uh, investigations for, for systemic sclerosis. I guess the other thing which uh, will probably be expected by the examiners is to think about it in a, in a holistic sense and whilst there, of course there's no such thing as routine blood tests you, you'll probably uh, be able to justify performing tests such as a, a full blood count looking looking for things such as anemia and renal function which as as you mentioned renal disease is, is a real uh, important thing to to monitor for in these patients and the, and the inflammation markers across the autoimmune rheumatic diseases are often elevated if you suspect this is hypothyroidism, you know, sometimes there'll be a blood test that can be used as a diagnostic test for the Raynaud's. So you might mention thyroid disease. We've talked about organ-specific autoimmunity being far more prevalent in the context of autoimmune rheumatic diseases. So thyroid function wouldn't be a bad thing to check. And muscle involvement. This, if When muscles are inflamed, they leak CPK. So checking the creatine kinase can be a useful test. If you're worried about myocarditis, you might want to check a troponin eye you know, to, again, look for uh, muscle damage. And another, again, the absolute top marks, you know, if you pulmonary arterial hypertension, it'd be very bad luck if you got a case of that in, in a PACES examination, but it wouldn't be impossible. But the NT pro BNP is a useful protein that we can measure in the bloodstream uh, in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension, representing that kind of right ventricular strain. So, yes, yeah, so I would start with just the full blood count, kidney function, inf inflammatory markers, anti-nuclear antibody, remember those. So, and, and the ANA, the anti-nuclear antibody, that is abnormal in myositis. Lupus, Sjogren's, all of the connective tissue diseases are typically associated with a positive ANA. Yeah, fantastic. 
If we move away from our Raynaud's just very slightly, we mentioned other symptoms, including esophageal dysmotility. I don't know how often you, you manage that yourself, John, or, or whether or not it's done with, in conjunction with gastroenterology, but how often do you utilize sort of endoscopy or, or contrast swallows for, for your patients in investigating their regurgitation or, or, or nausea, vomiting or reflux? I think a lot of scleroderma physicians will often treat and then investigate if the symptoms are refractory. So if a patient describes some uncomplicated reflux symptoms, you know, so there's no red flags, their weight is steady, there's no dysphagia, uh, they're not anemic, then I would potentially start those patients on a PPI and not necessarily investigate every single patient with barium swallows and endoscopy. But if the patient is anemic, if they're, they're losing weight, there are other features, then endoscopy is really important. They can bleed heavily from these telangiectases in the stomach, this watermelon stomach or gastric antral vascular ectasia where you get these telangiectases like a phenomenon within the stomach. And they can get uh, Barrett's esophagus, uh, strictures. Esophageal dysmotility is best uh, examined with uh, barium swallows. So yes, so I think we most scleroderma physicians will have a very low threshold for further investigating uh, symptoms particularly if they're refractory in nature again just thinking about paces and what you may well encounter in paces would be a case of a patient with systemic sclerosis and associated interstitial lung disease in that context it would be cross-sectional imaging of the chest so typically a high resolution ct scan without contrast which really allows you to look at the interstitial uh, within the uh, lungs and you'll often see other clues that this is systemic sclerosis on an HRCT so you might see a patulous esophagus you may see evidence of right ventricular hypertrophy or right ventricular strain so there are lots of other clues you may see on a CT uh, to indicate this is systemic sclerosis. Yeah absolutely and I guess as if if they have in the history reported exertional breathlessness then as well as a as well as a CT just for completeness, or whether or not you might jump to a CT first rather than have a chest X-ray, uh, but chest X-ray might be worth mentioning. And I guess if there are signs suggestive of or you're suspicious for pulmonary hypertension, then an echocardiogram won't, wouldn't go amiss either. And I guess just to be completest about it, lung function demonstrating a restrictive pattern would be uh, would be consistent with interstitial lung disease as well. Exactly. So, and that's exactly what we do in clinical practice. So, we, you know, in the PH clinic, we on the pulmonary function tests, you often in pulmonary arterial hypertension, the FVC is typically preserved, but the TLCO starts to drop, and uh, because you can't pull the oxygen from the airspace into the blood vessels because they've been obliterated, so uh, you get this discordance between the FVC and the TLCO. In lung fibrosis, you get the restrictive pattern on the uh, spirometry and the TLCO will fall in line with that. So you'll have maybe an FVC of 65% and a TLCO of 45%. So they, they kind of move down together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so pulmonary function tests are really important. I mentioned the six-minute walk test. And echocardiography is you know one of the vital investigations for pulmonary arterial hypertension. It allows you to look at the right-sided chamber size and function and all of the clinical guidelines suggest that all of our patients with systemic sclerosis should have annual pulmonary function tests and echocardiography to look because these are features that often emerge later on in the disease course. So as clinicians, we want to pick up on these as early as possible so we can get started with treatment. And you mentioned about chest x-ray. I don't think it would be unreasonable to suggest a chest x-ray, but in reality, 
uh, we will typically go, particularly in a new patient, we will go to HRCT. So in the, in the ILD clinic, we do very few chest x-rays because if patients need imaging, and we try to minimize it because obviously it does involve ionizing radiation, but we would tend to go straight to HRCT. So then if we move from our investigations onto the uh, day-to-day management of, of these patients, something in patients we always talk about is is starting this section off if in your discussion with the examiner that managing these patients as an MDT uh, is an MDT approach and obviously educating the patient about the condition, the natural history and individualizing the situation to the patient themselves based on their individual symptoms and, and disease severity. Absolutely. So it really is a, it's a multi-system disease and requires multidisciplinary management, both across specialties. So we work very closely with respiratory, cardiology, GI, renal, our allied health professionals play a really important role in terms of patient education, counselling, psychology inputs. You know, it, it's a very frightening disease. There's a lot of uncertainty for the future. So helping people work their way through that. And sadly, at the, you know, in the latter stages of the disease, you need to involve palliative care services. So, yes, yeah, so it's absolutely a, a team effort in terms of assessing and managing these patients. And then I guess one of the things which I looked at in, in terms of the active management of the condition, one arm is treating the inflammatory components of the condition. And then the other is managing the symptoms of, of the Raynaud's. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I would probably, I, I, I think there is symptom control. Uh, so reflux, for example, use of P, judicious use of PBI, PBIs to manage symptoms, bacterial overgrowth, you would use cyclical antibiotics to manage that type of problem then the two classes of treatments at the moment really are the vasodilators which we typically call upon to manage Raynaud symptoms pulmonary vasculopathy so pulmonary arterial hypertension uh, so we'll often uh, calcium channel blockers the dihydropyridine form so nifedipine amlodipine are usually our first line agent for managing Raynaud's we use a lot of sildenafil phosphodiesterase inhibitors uh, to manage both digital vasculopathy, but also pulmonary vasculopathy. And for the patients who develop critical digital ischemia or digital ulcers, we'll often bring them in for intravenous prostanoids as a very potent way of trying to encourage the blood vessels and the fingers to open up. And that's a treatment we'll also use to manage severe forms of pulmonary arterial hypertension as well. And then there are managing the fibrotic components. Most of the uh, treatments we use to manage fibrosis targets the immune system. So I mentioned that it's immune cells leaking into the interstitium of the skin and the lungs that excite the resident fibroblasts to differentiate into myofibroblasts and start laying down all this collagen. So we try to suppress the immune system. So and there's no doubt in our mind that you know systemic sclerosis is an autoimmune or immune-mediated disease, and we need to calm down that inflammation. But one of the big exciting developments in recent years has been uh, clinical trials that have shown uh, some efficacy uh, of the direct antifibrotic treatments, so treatments such as Nintendib, which they've been using to manage pulmonary fibrosis, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis for several years. There was a recent big trial that suggests that it can be beneficial uh, for managing lung fibrosis in the context of systemic sclerosis. And what was really exciting was that the, the patients who did best in that trial were patients who were also receiving immunomodulatory drugs. So we're, we're taking a two-pronged approach now to managing uh, lung fibrosis. So 
And in terms of which immunomodulatory drugs, again, I wouldn't expect an examinee or an examiner to necessarily know much about the different drugs we use, but one of our anchor drugs has become mycophenolate mofetil. That's been shown to be beneficial for both skin and lung fibrosis. There's been some very exciting clinical trial work looking at two of the monoclonal antibodies. One is rituximab, which is a drug that targets the B cells, the cells that are producing uh, or leading to the production of all the autoantibodies. And then tocilizumab, which is a drug that targets anti or IL-6, interleukin-6. The big trials suggested it didn't work in everyone in terms of skin involvement, uh, although there was a strong signal for some improvements in skin, but there were some really dramatic uh, signals for the lungs. So at the moment, we're really trying to think about where these immunomodulatory drugs, how to position them in terms of managing skin and lung disease. And these are more targeted treatments than the old approach to managing it, which was pulsed intravenous cyclophosphamide, but there is still a role for that drug, you know, in certain patients, uh, depending on the presentation. Fantastic. And I guess one other thing which I came across in my research for this episode is something which is very important in the context of uh, patients with systemic sclerosis compared to those who have other rheumatological conditions is that that steroids should be avoided to prevent the precipitation of a renal crisis. Is that something which is is something our listeners should be aware of when they see these patients on the medical take or elsewhere? Yeah, definitely in terms of the medical take. Yeah, so we generally avoid high dose steroids. It's the one, you know, you know, people mock rheumatologists for the fact that we always reach for steroids, but we don't reach for steroids a lot in systemic sclerosis. As you say, particularly in the patients with the rapidly progressive skin involvement, usually in the context of this antibody to RNA polymerase 3, if you use high dose oral steroids, you can precipitate a renal crisis. So yeah, definitely liaise with your rheumatologist and, and guard against using high-dose steroids in in the context of, of systemic sclerosis. And, and and I will actually, just one final thing around immunomodulation, the, the most powerful approach to modulating the immune system is autologous hemopoietic stem cell transplants. And unfortunately, diffuse early diffuse disease can have a very high disease-related mortality. And so... There is a role in some certain certain high-risk patients to consider a stem cell transplant. And now that itself is associated with a loss of treatment-related mortality, uh, about 10%. So you have to really think carefully about what are the risks versus the benefits of a treatment like that. It's a, it's a very difficult decision that obviously needs to be made, part of a multidisciplinary team approach, and obviously very closely with the patient to make sure they're fully informed for embarking on a very powerful treatment such as that. Finally, before we come to the uh, to the end, John, I thought we should just touch on a bit of clinical crossover, which is recognising a scleroderma renal crisis in, in clinical practice, because it's something which I have to say in my career, I think I've only seen once. And even then it was a possibility. It wasn't in the, in, it was probably more likely that they just had uncontrolled hypertension rather than, um, a renal crisis, but what are the key features of a, of a renal crisis that our listeners should be uh, should be aware of if they're managing an inpatient who has a background of systemic sclerosis? So my simplistic, I don't think this will come up in patients, by the way. So this is more of just for broader interest. But my my simplistic approach to what is happening in a renal crisis is the blood vessels, the arterioles supplying the kidney go into a vasospastic-like problem. 
Now, that leads to a drop in pressure in the juxtacomalular com- complex, which is where the baroreceptors sit. And so they perceive the blood pressure in the body to have dropped and start producing renin, enormous quantities of renin, which then lead to activation of the angiotensin ACE cascade, aldosterone. So, and unfortunately, when you start producing angiotensin 2, that is a very potent vasoconstrictor. So the, the arterioles clamp down even harder, the pressure drops even further, and you lead to even more renin production. So you end up in this, in this very destructive uh, negative cycle that's leading to higher and higher blood pressures because of the production of all these very potent vasoconstrictors. The kidney is being effectively infarcted because there's now no blood flowing into the nephrons. So you're going into renal failure. The blood pressure in the systemic system is getting higher and higher and higher because you're effectively aneuric. We call it a renal crisis because patients will often present with crashing left ventricular failure, hypertensive encephalopathy, hypertensive retinopathy, a rupture of a blood vessel, so an intracranial bleed. So it presents very dramatically. But in reality, we think that the development of renal crisis may take days and weeks to actually manifest. But patients are completely asymptomatic for much of this period. So our high-risk patients, we encourage them to monitor their blood pressure at home and become familiar with what their normal blood pressure is. Now, if somebody has a normal blood pressure that's 110 systolic, if they find that over the course of a week or two, it is always over 140 systolic, that is a big deal for somebody with systemic sclerosis. Even though if they rang their GP and said, my blood pressure is 140, the GP wouldn't necessarily be too excited. But so to change in people's normal blood pressure that we really get anxious about. And in that scenario, you know, we want to check a urine dip. You get a microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. So you get schistocytes on the blood, on the urine uh, film you can get increased blood and protein in the wee. And then you want to check the renal function to make sure the creatinine isn't beginning to rise. And I mentioned that, you know, change in blood pressure is the most important. And this means that some patients can have a normotensive renal crisis. Again, particularly if they've got cardiac disease and can't mount a high blood pressure, their blood pressure may never rise above 150. People aren't that excited about it, but they've got renal failure. And the only way you can really diagnose a renal crisis for absolute certainty is with a biopsy. So we we, you know, once we get the blood pressure under control, we'll, we'll attempt a biopsy if we can. But thankfully, it is very rare. You know, I, I've looked after a lot of systemic sclerosis patients over the years, and, and I will still only see four or five scleroderma renal crises a year, maybe, maybe even fewer than that in some years. So it's, 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 it's an uncommon presentation and one that we could potentially avoid because the treatment for a renal crisis is ACE inhibitors. And so, you know, you know, my patients, I encourage them to monitor their blood pressure. And if they do contact us to say the blood pressure has begun to rise, I'll have a very low threshold for initiating an ACE inhibitor. And we hope that we may be able to nip a um, renal crisis in the bud by, by using uh, drugs like ACE inhibitors uh, in that context. Fantastic. So that only leaves us to pay a huge uh, debt of thanks to our uh, fantastic guest, Dr. John Paul and consultant in uh, rheumatology, thank you so much for talking to us about systemic sclerosis today. Uh, It's been my pleasure, Sam, and thanks for having me along. And good luck to all of our listeners. I hope they do brilliantly in their exam. Well, with uh, generous people like yourself giving up your time to contribute to their education, I'm sure they won't go far wrong. But listeners, that is just about the time we've got, all the time we've got for this week's show. Please don't forget to like the podcast, follow us on Twitter and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have time, 
We really appreciate a five-star review uh, wherever you get your podcasts. We always love to hear from you, so give us a shout on our Twitter. It's at Prepaces Podcast. And if you really want to go above and beyond and support the show, you can do that at buymeacoffee.com slash Podcast. But for now, we are just about out of time. I've been Dr. Sam Williams. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pre-Paces Podcast. 